Coming to you from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm speaking with Craig Davidson, the author of books like Rust and Bone, uh, Sarah Court, The Fighter, Cataract City is the new one, brand, pretty much brand new out in the States. And he's also, he's a man of several literary personas. He's also known as the horror writer Nick Cutter. And Patrick, what's the pronunciation of the Patrick one? Uh, Lestuka. Patrick Lestuka. He's a man of many identities. Primarily today, he's Craig Davidson. But we'll talk about the work of all of these men who are actually one man. We're sitting here in this pub early, late morning, early afternoon in Toronto. This seems like a pleasant, very non-Niagara Falls type scene, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. It's not that far from my house. We're about five minutes away from my house. I'm, I'm thankful to you for taking the subway, subway out to meet me. Such as it was. Such as it was with the infrastructure that's uh, crumbling in, in this city in some ways. But um, yeah, we're, we're, we're a ways from sort of my, my hometown as I feel it when I write. But uh, my fiancé and I uh, live here now and uh, we're, we're happy enough. Mm, and it's, it's a stark contrast to the city that makes the setting of cataracts. I mean, I've never been to Niagara Falls, but it's not like this. Is it? No, I'd say this is a lot more cosmopolitan, a lot more. Um, you know, I would say there's a lot less. There's some blue collar, obviously, in Toronto, pockets of it. But uh, Niagara Falls, as I've always seen it and as I've lived it, is is a much more of a blue collar uh, town and uh, a factory town. Uh, but of course, you've got sort of the the veneer, the overlay of of the tourist. You know, sort of the, the tourist industry that ticks away. And so when people come there, they have the idea of it being the honeymoon capital of the world and Clifton Hill and the actual falls themselves. Uh, but what really sort of uh, is bustling away beneath that or below that, behind that maybe, is, uh, you know, it's just a lot of good, hardworking, blue-collar folks. Are you then attracted to desperate settings, per se? I think... Um, hmm, that's a good co- question, Colin. I think... I think like a lot of writers, I think I'd say that I'm always interested in the life that I never led. You know, so I was grown solidly middle class. My mom was a nurse. My father was a banker. Um, you know, I never had to want, whereas my dad came up very, very uh, blue collar, uh, you know, lower class. And I think he wanted in a lot of ways to provide for me and my brother in ways that he, his parents simply couldn't provide for him monetarily. They were very loving, but simply monetarily. So. So I think he went out of his way, him and my mother both, to kind of make sure that we never felt the um, suffering that he felt he felt. And uh, maybe in a a strange way, uh, that makes me in sort of my fictional terrain want to deal with characters in in strife and and suffering. Because that is a a kind of test, because you sort of know what you can do when faced with that. And when when your parents lift you out of that because they want you to have a better life, you kind of long for the test, right? I think that's very much it. I think I think uh, maybe maybe not only me, but but maybe men and and women of of, of my generation, um, having not had those tests or what they feel like are those tests. You know, and not all of us. You know, ones who grew grown up in a certain way. Um, yeah, maybe feel as though there's something that has been missed or there's some uh, inherent weakness in them that has never been addressed or has never been put to the test, or maybe it is a strength, but they've just never had it actually activated so that they could know for certainty. Um, and certainly me writing books about it doesn't necessarily address it in any other way than than sort of in a, in a fictional sense. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not addressing it sort of head-on, although, although I certainly I've... I've made sure in some ways to to make sure I've suffered privation in my own life and put myself to certain tests. But um, yeah, whether is, is whether there's there's a deep interest in in suffering or strife when I write. I think ultimately I like to have have characters who go through things, you know, and and so who come out and as changed and and. And and in sort of the the metamorphosis of that is is through trials that are of a physical uh, and sometimes of a desperate nature. And this is a Niagara Falls in Cataract City, a Niagara Falls of dog fighting, of bare knuckle boxing, of dog racing, of cigarette smuggling, of uh, knee smashing. I mean, the pursuits of this play. I mean, the best. The most genteel pursuit in the book is factory work. I mean, that's that's the that's the ceiling, right? Right. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think one of the things that I worried about most with this book is because, um, like, I'm a son of 
of Cataract City. I'm a son of Niagara Falls. I grew up I grew up in St. Catharines, which is about 20 minutes away, but functionally we're kind of, we call it the Golden Horseshoe. It's the same sort of five cities and towns in the same area that, that all kind of share a jurisdiction. And are they all Canada? Are there, but Niagara Falls itself, is, it's got a, the national border going through it. How does this work? What's, what's American and what's Canadian? Or is it kind of a liminal state zone where no one really knows what they are? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's what the book kind of addresses. And I think that's what I, where, where some people who have read the book find the fascination. It's not, it's not actually two realms. I find it's three because you've got the Canadian side, which, uh, again, is, is very tacky and glitzy, but also has a backbone of really working-class heart running through it and you've got the american side which is rough it's a it's a rough place i feel like it's the the great northern fringe of that empire and in some ways it's kind of ignored uh and then you've got right off to the side really you know but only a couple miles distance the the native reservation uh, which is its own kind of special realm and has its own laws and uh and meanings and so these three things, in terms of me writing about it, I mean, first of all, I didn't really have, I don't have a choice. I feel like this is just the place that I feel most comfortable living in and writing about, and so it kind of came naturally. But it does fulfill all the things that, that are necessary for me to write about the things that, that I just find really fascinating about life. It is, it's a place where a lot of, there's a lot of seething. This, the, the Niagara Falls, the cataract city of the novel, I mean, there's, the resentment between even two levels at the factory, management and labor, there's the resentment between friends that erupts periodically. You have two friends in the book, uh, Duncan and Owen, who just, their relationship periodically shatters, it seems like. It just, things build up and it breaks for a while. There's the resentment between, as you say, the reservation is there, uh, between, I guess you'd say, First Nations and Canada, we just say Indians in America, <laughs> between them and here it's stark. I mean, it's just natives and whites, right? There's two races in this book, it seems like. Yeah, I would say all, the one thing about Niagara Falls is it is a very... We're, we're talking here in Toronto, which is a very multicultural city. Um, I'd say Niagara Falls, uh, the Canadian side, is very white bread. Very white. The American side is, is very black and very white. There's that, there's that tension if it exists. That's the old American tension, black and white. So. Here's the old Canadian tension, yes. red and white, as they say. Exactly. Yeah, I'd say there definitely is. And as you go northern, more northern in Canada, you're going to run across deeper, deeper tensions where uh, sort of that colonial instinct comes up against the, the First Nations' uh, sense of things and, and their land squabbles and, and these kind of things. But we're sort of talking about a more urban setting of... Uh, but those tensions are still absolutely as powerful and probably in some ways even more powerful because um, land up north, there's just miles and miles and miles of it. Uh, the, the closer you get to urban centers, that land, those borders become much more tight-packed and there's uh, the tension kind of uh, gets stronger because of it. There's a line that one character says in this book that seemed to be very telling. He's, he's speaking to the sort of entrapment of a place like this. He says, you know, other people research how to cure cancer. They make rockets or what have you. My people, what they do is they research what dog can, like, best thrash another dog in a race or in a fight. You know, what does that speak to about the way that you get a, a cataract city tracks somebody into a sort of a fairly low-level trap? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, and these are the things that I was always concerned about while writing it, and this this is probably answering your question, but probably taking a different tack on it as well, is that one of the things that I was worried about, because I am a Cataract City native, is, you know, how are my old friends, not old friends, old, old is to say they're not anymore my friends, my friends, uh, my childhood friends and, and their families would... would receive this book you know because i think it's it feels to me like a truthful telling of my sense of that place but also i recognize it's fiction and if i need things to be there and if i need to have characters say certain things to sort of i guess accentuate the the kind of themes that i'm wanting to work with uh do, you know do i step outside of what the literal reality is well yes i do um so is, you know, Cataract City necessarily, Niagara Falls, that area, necessarily a place of 
the profound despair that I sometimes picture in the book. I mean, yes and no, but you can find those same pockets of despair, those same people who feel like they are on a on a narrow track in Los Angeles where you come or Toronto where I live now. So so in that way it's kind of, of universal. I feel like there are people everywhere in this world, whether they're living in a cosmopolitan area or a small town, that feel like they are railroaded in their lives and that there's no that there's no hope for them to skip the tracks and move on to a life that better suits them. Um, I just Dealing with a universally low-placed segment of society. This segment is everywhere, not just Niagara yeah, Falls. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yes, I think that's maybe an important thing that the longer I've talked about the book and um, kind of dwelled on it, uh, I think as a writer you want to find universals and, and the ways that not only does this apply to the place geographically where you set the book, but hopefully, uh, it has some kind of resonance to people outside of it. But yes, I think, um, I think very specific. Like for example, I came from a middle class family, and so I did have an opportunity. You know, my my parents insisted that I go to university, and and that opened up a lot of opportunities for me. That say, the Duncan character in this book is based on my friend uh, Matt from Niagara Falls, and his father worked at. The, the bisque, the Nabisco, oh, yes. fa the Nabisco factory, which is now the post factory. But anyway, it's a cookie factory. It's still a going concern. It's, this cookie factory, this baked good factory yeah. of some kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's still there. Uh, it will probably be there until you know, until the rest of the the city crumbles around it, because it's the main source of of income and uh, for a lot of people there. And uh, but if he wanted, to, what what happened with him basically was like. His parents were like, if you want to go to university or college, that's fine, but you've got to pay for it. And the best way to do it is once you graduate, go work at Nabisco. We can get you in there. And uh, and he just never... I, I think at some point those kind of uh, opportunities felt like they dwindled away, and then he suddenly is working at, at the, the Nabisco factory, and that becomes sort of his life. So whereas mine, I had the opportunity to do something different and and but when you look back at it like he is very happy right now he has a family he is d deeply happy in a way that seems really genuine to him and there's many days where i don't feel probably the happiness that he feels or at least i assume so right so so you say you two had this opportunity this person didn't have it well in the end it's about being happy with your life and and all the opportunities in the world don't necessarily ensure happiness well this reflects another type of resentment in real life which is the kind of generational resentment happening in North America, especially right now, like, hey, that guy a couple generations back started on the line at Nabisco and he worked his way up to uh, to management as a character does in this book, but there's the perception that that's not really possible anymore. Uh, I don't and I think a lot of people our age in their 30s don't know whether to feel cheated out of something because of that, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's like, what's the whole, the whole, you know, born on third base and thought thought he had a triple. Um, you know, and, and so, whether you thought you had a triple or not, if you're born on third base or second base, well, then you never have to actually, potentially, have that hit to get you to first, to, to get yourself to second. So, uh, it's a weird resentment of harbor, though, isn't it? And, you know, it's weird, because we don't think about, like, this is, there's certain generations, like, one in this book, or even the, even the generation of Duncan and Owen, yeah. they think... They, and this is hard to get my mind around, maybe it was hard for you to get your mind around to write it, but that they would determine the course of their lives based on what factory was close to them. You know what I mean? Like, that's there. I guess I'll do that. You know, that's kind of alien to us, right? Yeah, I agree. It's, it's certainly, and, and in a way, like, um, for me, when I grew up, the majority in St. Catharines, we had the GM plant. So it's the same. Like, Niagara Falls is, is the Nabisco plant. St. Catharines, 20 minutes away, is the GM plant. And it had the same magnet. It had the same magnetism. And we, I knew guys going through high school who they knew already. Their dad worked at the GM plant. They were going to go work at the GM plant. That was kind of going to be their... And, and I don't know. It almost seemed like they were, they were actually cool with that. So, I mean, I think it's a mindset thing, too. Some people are really happy to find what they like to do, build a life around that. Others want to kind of explore, do all sorts of different things. And it just, sometimes you're born in the wrong, you know, possibility stream, I guess you would say. If you're the, you're the type who wants to settle down and you're born with parents who are pushing you to do more than that, well, then you're, you're going to be upset, vice versa. So if you're on the other side of it, then, then of course you're going to be upset. The, and, you know, these are sort of wonderful questions to kind of kick around. 
um, there's no answer to them. There's you know, no yeah, there's no answer to them, and and it's like all good uh, questions. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I complete I completely agree. And they're, they're the things that you sit and you dwell on, and you think about your own circumstances, and uh, and I think that's a wonderful thing about writing a book is you get to extrapolate circumstances that. Uh, you didn't, you weren't afforded, or or you didn't have to suffer through. I guess in some ways, um, yeah. And it gives you an opportunity for the kind of writer you are. I mean, I've mentioned before that you are also you write under other names. It sounds like publisher mandated. You know, maybe the audience won't like it if you're all writing all these books under one name. So you're also the horror writer Nick Cutter, but not making any. You're not tricking anybody with that. You you know people know who this is like a Nora Roberts J.D. Robb thing. Like pe- people know who it is. But I wonder. There's a broader question that I'll get to, but first let me ask: Do your horror readers cross over at all? I, is is do you get a sense of if your your readership is really divided along pseudonym lines? Um. I, you know, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to say that with any clarity. Uh, the horror the horror book as Nick Cutter just came out not even a year ago, so it's been kind of an emerging thing to trying to figure out where the readership is, what the crossover is. And I would actually say that I I would have been surprised. It, first of all, it was you you nailed it. It was my agent and and kind of the surrounding infrastructure who thought, listen, we got to have different names here because uh, readers won't really respond they won't they'll be sort of confused almost you know and i think that was not giving readers enough credit but at the same point uh i was fine to listen to the advice because i i respect my agent a lot but but i think there is there's there's people who have discovered obviously through it doesn't take any kind of an internet search to discover that nick cutter and craig davidson are the same person but if you're asking how many people have read the stuff under Nick Cutter or Patrick Estuka, who has also read Craig Davidson, that's actually a smaller number. There does seem to be a divide there. But which, you kind of want to talk to those guys, right? Well, yeah, and it, and it shocked me because, you know, it shocked me only because maybe the type of reader I am, which you, as a human being, you sort of think that you are just representative of everybody. When it comes down to it, maybe you are actually a very small segment of a very small segment. And I loved reading horror and literary fiction together, but it seems like there is a greater schism there between people who will read, quote-unquote, in my case, literary fiction and and horror fiction. But I I think also, you're right, um, a lot of the elements of Cataract City or Rust and Bone or certainly Sarah Court or The Fighter are very... um, I mean, they're very visceral. They're very... That was the word I was going to use, in fact. I was thinking, what connects these... The literary works of Craig Davidson, the horror work of, of Nick Cutter, they're, they're both, they're all novels of the visceral in a way. Yeah, yeah, I think I think very much so. And it's not like I, uh, you know, sit down and say, well, I'm putting on my Nick Cutter hat now and I'm writing under Nick Cutter or, oh, well, I better take this off and put on my Craig Davidson hat. It's all very, it's all, I could sit down and actually write as Nick Cutter during the, during the morning and then edit as you know, some book I've done under my own name in the afternoon, and there's no shift or schism in my head. And I think anyone who reads, say, a couple pages of Cataract City and then reads a couple pages of The, the Troop, for example, will recognize, okay, this is the same person, you know, and there's not, there, I mean, there are differences. I think I allow myself, obviously, to indulge in more fantastical flights of fancy with as Nick Cutter. And... You know, to be honest, it's, it's somewhat easier to write as Nick Cutter, um, just just because I think the burden of literary fiction carries a certain sense of making sure that every word counts, maybe more so than... Uh, but that just might be me. That might be my own inborn biases against genre and saying, well, it should be easier to write genre fiction than it is literary fiction. But I don't, I don't actually truly think that's the case, you know? Right. Well, there, there is a genre writer you've gone on record as quite admiring, uh, Stephen King, whom everybody has read. I think we all, there's very few people who have never read a Stephen yeah. King book. And I was, I've often wondered why, what makes Stephen King books so much more effective? Than you know whoever is trying to clone Stephen King yeah. uh, in their own on their own computer, but I think there's something in common with his books and yours that's uh, at a deep level. Stephen King's books are unsettling because not because of the horror necessarily to my mind, not because of the creepy stuff you see or the gross images or like the you know Stephen King is good with horrific images of like horrific like horrific images of mutilation and killing but also like 
horrific sexual stuff too. He doesn't get enough credit for that. But as well, it's not that. It's it's that he puts that stuff up against very very detailed elements of poor or working class life, like the almost almost mildly desperate life. Do you agree about that as a Stephen King reader? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think and I think too the more we more Stephen King has gone on as a as a writer, he, I mean, there are certain writers who transcend genre. And he's written enough now and he's written in so many different kind of avenues that that's uh, you know, a uh, a book like uh, or a novella like The Body, uh, you know, Stand by Me doesn't it's not horror at that point that is something that could have tripped off the pen of of anybody you know of, of any of any writer i mean any any fabulously talented and in, introspective writer who understands human nature as well as even horror more often than you think right exactly yeah or or uh, yeah absolutely and and i think um and he doesn't have to go under Craig Davidson to no, write that, right? No, no, he's done it all. I mean, did Richard Bachman for yeah. a while, but I, I like mean, those books. So do I. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think he's the one of the most keen chroniclers of childhood too that I've ever seen, of I've ever read of of a, of a writer who really understands the qualities of what it is to be a child, and um, which is amazing because I feel like you know Cataract City in the first part deals with being kids. And it's difficult to sort of pull your mind back to that point in your life where you were a child and you looked at, at things the way a child does, which is a totally different viewpoint, obviously. It sort of gets ripped out of you as adulthood kind of pulls it away in shreds. Um, but, but I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I mean, well, I did my master's uh, of English, and I remember they went around the class the first day and asked, well, what's your favorite writer? I remember when I said Stephen King, there was just kind of this rippling of like, almost disgust of like this that not not Pynchon, not Delillo, not what that him why? There's a rebellious aspect to it though. I guess there's a rebellious aspect, and I think within within the upper quarters of academia and and whatever highborn literature you might want to aspire to or talk about, there's this sense of like he's too prolific. I remember Harold Bloom wrote some screed against him. Um, but I think true on the ground, boots on the ground, in terms of writers who are practicing right now writing, you will find a lot of love and uh, respect and admiration for Stephen King and what he does and what he's brought to, not just the genre, although that's been am amazing, but just to just to writing in general and how much he's influenced so many of us, some of whom will cop to it, others won't. Some of the disdain for Stephen King may come from the fact that his mission is a bit too clear up front. Like a book, you buy a book because you want to be scared by him, and probably will be. If it's most of his books, I think effectively do that for a lot of people. And there's not when you're writing literarily, it's not so. Uh, that's not really the program, is it? To really announce your intention. I agree. I, I guess that's true. I mean, it's one of those things that you think about when you. Think about writing, and then you put your head to it. What what is the the intention of a, of a literary writer? Or how do they, how do they announce their intentions? If at all, you're right, and that's much more circumspect generally as a literary writer. Uh, whereas you're right, you know, obviously as as Stephen King started that way, uh, but but as I guess I as I already alluded to or, or said outright, um, so much of his stuff is really dealing with less. There's many books that don't scare you, and I don't even think he he almost might feel like there's some intention of scaring you but there's uh, but there's no need to I mean it can actually exist those books can exist without even the mild little shocks that they're trying to give you like I'm trying to think of the the one he recently did about the Kennedy assassination yes, yes. Uh, it was just named for the date of the assassination you know in the US yes, I don't yes, know it's, it's same thing same thing here or, or the year and um, and there, there's a very small allusions to some something pursuing him that might be you know, but but ultimately, that's just a strong book about character, and and um, you know, so so I think he has changed. But you're right, you're right, and and sometimes you know, listen. There's the thing too, as a writer, as any kind of creative person, your history trails you. You can't divorce yourself from any of that. So such as it is, yeah. Now, many of your much of your writing as Craig Davidson has involved boxing. Cataract City does, and I can imagine that. I've heard you have a short story collection written as well in the world of Cataract City, and I'm sure boxing is not not a part of it. Um, what is the draw of boxing? Is it does it have to do with, you know, as a writer, you have no more basic conflict than a boxing match? Yeah, that's I, that's actually interesting because it is it is something that uh, I feel like I 
probably finally moved on for. It's not like you might might not find a boxing story out of me ten years down the line, but I haven't actually dwelled on on that kind of that specific kind of conflict in a while. But but when I was, yeah, when I was first writing, I think you you nailed it. It's I think you need as a writer vehicles vehicles to explain or or kind of prove an entryway into the sort of motivations that you want to describe the sort of themes and the sort of human context that you want to kind of the terrain that you want to cover and boxing always did do that it was not only as the physical point of two two men uh two women whatever it is in in the ring um it was everything that flowed backwards out of that, like a pond, uh, you know, a, a pebble dropped in a, in a lake, and, and the ripples of like, what is the mindset that you have to bring into that? What 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 are the, what is the sort of monk-like observances that you have to kind of commit to in order to bring yourself to that moment? And and really, what do you discover about yourself? I think that's mainly mainly it. And I think a lot of my stories and novels come to that. It's that moment of, who am I? And you don't understand that you don't come to the deep understanding of that unless you put in that crucible of really of understanding and sometimes it's physical sometimes it's some other kind of decision that you're put up against but mine was like who are you as a person when the rubber hits the road and what a better way can I could I get to that moment than than through conflict and you don't you don't learn about yourself really if you win all the time I mean I have a friend who told me about, actually a childhood friend that I've known since uh, Duncan and Owen met each other, in fact, that same age, and he recently got into boxing. But we're 30 at this point. That's too old to start. But, but still, he, it's not about winning for him. I was talking to him about, you know, he's had to, he had to talk the coach into letting him in because everyone else was 22, right? He wins sometimes, but it's better... And this is going to sound ridiculous because in the moment it's not good, but ultimately it's good to lose. It's it's good. Nobody, a man does not often lose at a boxing match these days. You know what I mean? Just in life. There's no, not a lot of guys walking down the street who have got the, you know, have got their ass beat. Yeah. I think actually if you'll indulge me in a bit of a, a story here, I'll, I'll tell you about my own experience with that because when my second book, The Fighter, came out here in Canada, my uh, publicist called me up and he said, I think what we might want to do is uh, is have a boxing match, you know, an actual you versus somebody. And I think he had assumed that I'd had any boxing training, and I hadn't really, you know. Um, in fact, I'd had really none at all. But I thought, well, listen, this is my this is my job, and uh, I should do it. So I agreed to it. And I was actually living down in Iowa at the at that point, um, going to school, and so they eventually put out a call to just the Canadian literary community. And uh, my agent, my, my, my publicist called me up and said, we found an opponent. He's a poet. I thought, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I went to school with some poets and good, good, you know, good guys, but I wouldn't be worried about them, you know, fighting in the ring. And so I flew up uh, to Toronto to meet the guy and he was just an enormous man, Michael Knox, and uh, like had some boxing experience, very but big too, like and just very serious because you can't really, in in the end, in a fight you can't fake it. You got to get in there and you've got to actually trade leather. And uh, so I went back to Iowa, and I had two months, and I'd already been training, but I really ramped up my training. And the way I'd always pictured it then, or the way I pictured it back then, was. It's like a train crash that you know is coming in, in two months, and you've just got to be, you've got to have your train in as good of shape that it's not going to be totally derailed. Having met the guy, it was sort of a sense of like, I just got to get through this. It was a three. Was just his hugeness? Oh, he was huge, but he was, I wouldn't say he was mean, that's not the right, but he was very serious, very serious, and, uh, and much, you know, more physically skilled than I was, and had some background at it. Um, and so the day came, and and yeah, you know, I got a beating. I took a beating in front of 450 people. Uh, but, you know, I landed some punches, and I stayed up, you know, and it was a three-round amateur boxing match, like, for real, no joke, and neither of us took it as a joke because you can't. And uh, my father and brother came up, and afterwards, I mean, it's just this outlet of adrenaline, like the most massive adrenaline dump you've ever felt, and relief. And so we went out. There was a bar directly below the 
the boxing club and we just got drunk like all of us we just got hammered and we were in a cab going back to the hotel and my dad said like something along the lines of I've never been more proud of you than I am today and I'm like dad I got the shit kicked out of me and he's like that doesn't matter and in time I've recognized that doesn't matter you know what I mean it just matters just being there standing up and in fact in some ways it's not I'm not patting myself on the back but to know you're going to get a beating for two months and having to, but still realizing that I'm not going to fake a sickness or I'm not going to pretend, oh, I'd strain my hamstring, I can't do this, and just going in and taking your beating. Um, you know, and, and did I become a better man from it? I don't know, that's kind of a bigger, bigger question than I'm really ready to answer, but, um, but did it, did it have an impact on my life and do I feel like I can face certain things better having gone through that experience? And was it a silly promotional thing? Yeah, but whatever. You t you take your forward steps where you can find them. And you, you did that twice, right? As memory serves, once in the U.S. as well. Was it was it exactly? Was it also a learning experience to do it again, or was it just like oh, this game? It was. I, f I fought. Um, God bless him. I fought Jonathan Ames, who was a wonderful guy and and a, and, a, and a tough bastard as well. And uh, he beat me as well. Uh, he didn't beat me as bad, but he beat me. Um. I think it's the same thing. It's almost like riding a book, riding a bike. Once you've done it once, uh, you can continue to do it, you know. So it wasn't as bad, uh, and I wouldn't want to ever do it again. Um, but I, I guess like we talked before. Do you still that, want to box in any way? No. No. In fact, my buddy here, um, Matt Lennox, who is also a wonderful writer here, is gearing up for his first uh, fight, real amateur you know, I think six round fight and he wanted like sparring partners. And I said, Matt, it's just not I'm not it's not in me anymore. I'm I'm too old. I had my I had my go at it. Uh I'll never forget it. But I don't need to throw myself back into I've got a I've got a fiance now, we've got a two year old. I don't she doesn't need to see me coming home all busted up and or even knowing that I'm gonna go out to do that. So so no, I think there's certain things that unfortunately on your timeline you just have to kind of say that's enough of right and it's it's rare that a character in cataract city and your novel will say that's enough i mean especially the main characters owen and duncan are just enduring this constant stream of physical punishment right. aren't they yeah yeah they are and i think as we I, I spoke about before it's um i don't know who said it but uh character sorry action builds character and so just let your characters experience stuff and go through stuff. And um, and in, in my case, it's it's stuff of a physical nature and, and of kind of trying themselves. And, and Duncan especially, of, of the two characters, the more blue-collar character, um, goes through a lot. A hell of a lot. But in a way, I, I don't know. I, I find like characters like that who just continue to suffer but keep getting up and, and keep... Because you only have one body. You, you, that's what you were given, and we go through life with it. And anything that absorbs, we have to live with it until the day that we shuffle off this mortal coil. So that kind of sacrifice in the... in And also in, in Duncan's case, in in pursuit of something for himself, but really also for the people that he loves and cares about, um, feels like a noble ambition. And uh, and so, yeah, he suffers a lot, but but it's, it's for something. When I was talking to the... Your fellow Torontonian novelist, uh, Russell Smith, a while ago, he was saying he heard that 80% of fiction sold to women, and booksellers told him it's more like 90 in our experience. I take it you're writing for that other 10. Yeah, I think, and that was, Russell's very wise in that, and that's one thing that I was shocked. Again, as I spoke about before, you, I, you tend to think that your experience is the experience that would be prevalent, and then you realize, wait a sec, no, I'm a very small... <laughs> segment of, of a much larger kind of demographic and I thought well why wouldn't all guys read and read the sort of stuff that I read and when my first book Rust and Bone came out it was a rude awakening that way of no there aren't a lot of men who read fiction and, and why to do they're not necessarily looking for the visceral exactly exactly you know and that that breaks down just by personality but uh, and and women absolutely not I found I found strangely women women read a lot of horror, you know, more so than I would have been been aware of, uh, you know, initially. Uh, but you know, in terms of like, I mean, you have you have your Chuck Palahniuk's and 
you know, a few a few writers of that elk who are presenting a, a what seems like a very male view of the world and and yeah. seem to sell very well. But it's, it's like women are sort of barely in Chuck Palahniuk's universe in a lot of ways. He has a, he has a female following. Oh, an enormous one, yeah. And and I guess before you get into it, you feel like, well, okay, well, fine, that exists. Why can't you know? But there's only so many. Sp- you know, spots at that particular dance, um, but then you then you run up against a, a notion of, well, two things. One, what else could I do? You know, this is my view of the world. This is the way I, I see things. And if I were to sort of try and write something against my own grain, it would probably feel very fake, and and it would be noticeable of of, of the sense of like this this is not true writing. And there's other a stubbornness in me too that that says more or less the same thing that I just said and like well this is this is what I have to offer and you know uh, if, if we can keep going with it I think the one lucky thing with me and I've noticed this is that this is a weird dichotomy but women don't read a lot of books but a lot of male directors do <laughs> yeah. so you can find yourself uh, your books falling into the hands of, of directors who have a sympathy or understanding for the world that you're presenting and they can so you, a book can get a second life present like Rustin Bone did with the film and and potentially any maybe another book will so so I think the, you know my agent talks about it like another bite of the apple and sometimes you're not angling for another bite of the apple. You just write what you write, and and whatever life it takes is what it takes. But sometimes you're right on the actual book selling side of it. Um, very viscerally male books simply don't have the readership uh, to sustain the numbers that that some other books do. You know, I think back to the what I know of the late '50s and early '60s and the sort of, sort of high-profile, glamorous boxing matches that went on. The stars of the sport here in 2014. You know, we're sort of down to bare knuckle fights between uh, guys who you know I'm trying to think of guys who someone who don't know them would call white trash versus natives who are also on the skids you know pummeling the crap out of each other probably killing each other in a lot of these cases what happened to boxing? yeah that's a good question I I, um, you'd say that MMA bit into that kind of a little bit but I I think the truth of the matter is well I don't know I shouldn't say the truth of the matter is because I don't know what the truth of the matter is but um, I feel that society in ways just probably moved away from it you know Um, and whether that's a good or a bad thing is not really for me to talk about but but again I mean it's weird like I have a lot of friends and they they, it eventually comes around to the idea have you ever even been in a fight you know, gets to that question sooner. Yeah, sooner or later. Like, have you ever been in a fight? And to me, again, this was another thing that, like, yeah, I got in fights all the time when I was a kid. Not because I wanted to. Um, I was the kid who got picked on and came to realize at some point, okay, if I fight this guy, even if he beats the crap out of me, which was almost always the case, <laughs> they would leave me alone after that because it's like, well, he he's got that spunk at least that he's gonna come and come at me and I, there's got to be easier meat to be found so you know by the time I even got to these fights that we're talk, we just finished talking about I mean I was used to getting in fights I was used to losing fights um, but there's a lot of guys in my generation who you you, you pose that question to and like no uh, maybe wrestling matches with my brother or something but I've never been in a knockdown, drag out fight and that's another thing that sort of shocked me is that that doesn't seem to exist so that being the case, what are you watching boxing for? Either the visceral thrill of, of engaging in something that you've never been in yourself, or you just see it as an antiquated, like, well, that's so silly. Why would people even do that anymore? Yeah, there, there's that. There's a feeling that humanity, in some quarters, the feeling that humanity has transcended solving things with fists. I mean, still, with wars and whatnot, but with on a man-to-man level, you're surprised to see fists come out. But in Cataract City, you know, the, the city of the novel and the Niagara Falls of the novel, like... A big event of the book happens because a bunch of guys' dads just start, like, I'm not even really, it It makes, it feels that it makes sense, but I'm not even sure I could explain, like, why the dads started fighting. Like, why Why in a place like Cataract City are they so quick to go to fists as a way to not even resolve problems, but just, what are they playing out there? Well, I think I think in the scene you're talking about, it was it's kind of like class differences in the way that the one father is, has become and that that's I mean that's one thing that I noticed having been a son of Cataract City and be, becoming a writer 
And I think people have a sense of, of if you become a writer, you're your streets are paved with gold and money is falling from the sky and you're just catching it randomly and they think everything's wonderful and you go home and uh, and there there's a sense amongst my friends who I, I love dearly um, but some who I don't hang out with anymore is that you think you're better than us and so I mean that's that's the thing of a small town I think and this might be a stereotype but I've found it actually really personified in my own life is that if you leave, you better not come back in better straits in any way or perceive to be in better straits because then you become better than us. And it's more like it's better we all... You better be defeated. Yeah, you better be defeated and you're coming back and you're going to be one of us and then you'll be accepted. Um, but, the, I mean, in my case, it's like I never... First of all, I never felt like I was an enormous success at all. And I felt most comfortable there. And yet the, the strange sadness, I guess, was that is that you're perceived in some way as, um, well, you're better than us, you think you're better than us, you're looking down upon us, which is absolutely not the case at all. Um, so it becomes tough to go home, you know? And so, so I mean, that's sort of what played out in that scene that you're mentioning, is that this guy worked hard, went to college, you know, basically got a better job at the same factory that they all worked at, and everybody who was still working down the line held resentment up against him for feeling that he had he was better than them whereas his sense is like oh, I just you know I wanted something better for myself and for my family not to say that what you have is not good but I just wanted something different but that resentment kind of is what spurred and you're right yeah could they just have sat down and said you know what why I'm feeling upset is because I think that you think you're better than me but that that requires too much kind of like talking and, and working through the problem whereas you just start flashing fists and it gets gets to the head a lot quicker it's true and when you're when you're fighting, when you're fist fighting, there is no class anymore. Nothing, no class matters. Nothing like that, right? Well, and yeah, and in fact, usually in in those cases, the lower class is actually at an advantage because they've come up a lot harder, and they understand that kind of sense a lot more deeply. And uh, and I, if I were just a betting man in general, an upper class person versus a lower class person in a fight, you'd, you'd generally bet lower class. I mean, by pure experience alone, they probably had a few fights coming up, you know? And these sons of Cataract City in the book, you know, they, they are always talking about hardness, like what it, what it means, why this place makes you hard, what it means to be hard. I wonder, I mean, do they think, when they look over at Toronto, do they think that those people are not coming up hard? Well, they might, but but the truth of the matter is, like, my, my fiancé is a social worker, so she goes into some very hard pockets of this city, and, and the hardness of, of those pockets might be more durable than than whatever the pockets are in, in Niagara Falls, not that that's ever going to be quantified in any way. I think any city has its has its rough pockets, but if they're, if they're looking across from Cataract City, at like the spires of downtown, the gleaming skyscrapers where industry happens, then yeah, they would probably probably feel that way, and they would probably feel. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I you know that's the good question because as I said, you're always interested in the life that you didn't lead. So I don't know what that sentiment is, whether that's something to be aspired towards, whether that's something to be kind of be upset about or or kind of um, get your back up over. But also, I know a lot of people in, in Cataract City who are very happy with their lives and, and very happy with with their day-to-day existence. And I find that sometimes with the people in the big skyscrapers who make more money than God, um, you know, they're as equally twisted up about the lives. In fact, maybe more so twisted up about the lives that they lead and, and worried about the ways that they don't fulfill whatever it is that they thought that they were going to have when they when they were born, you know? Um, right. I mean, the concept of ab- abstraction seems pretty important here. I mean, when you're working on a line sorting out cookies or what have you, your labor is not very abstract. When you're in a tower in downtown Toronto in finance, you're more abstracted from what you're doing. And as we say, when you're boxing... Maybe as a sp- boxing became less popular as a sport because it's not abstract enough. It's too non-abstract to conflict. Tennis is more abstract. That's more popular. But we somehow lost our taste for things that weren't at least a little bit abstracted. I, that's that's a that's an interesting question, and it could very well be true. I I, I puzzle over that myself. 
you know. Um, well, I wonder if it's a question with literary fiction versus genre fiction. I mean, how do people use those labels? Genre fiction, things are less abstracted, right? Things are more real up front. The gross stuff, the action, it's happening in your face. The romance, it's right there. Literary fiction, we could almost define it as being sort of one level of abstraction up, right? Yeah, and I think that's probably... I'm going to speak, you know, personally, uh, and maybe this is based on a years of, you know, doing a master's program and an MFA and, and maybe being too in, um, I become more a fan of, of like, because the, that, that's the way my own emotions are. They're, they're actually very unnuanced. They're very straightforward. They're, they're almost very black and white. You know what I mean? And, and, and when I feel something for my fiance or my son or my father or my mother, there, there's, there's not a lot of gray area there. There, there, and, and so I, I guess maybe when we were talking before about how it's easier to write genres sometimes because you can present the way that you really feel in some ways without these enveloping layers of nuance and, and kind of like, or pulling back and, and kind of letting the reader, like, you can see what I'm saying here, right? You, you can understand, you can intuit where I'm going here or, you know, um, and I, you know, and I, I, I don't know. It's very difficult to say. I, I love good literary writing when I read it, and I love restrained literary writing. But I think I'm not a restrained writer, uh, as you probably noticed reading Cataract City, and I'm I'm fine with that. You know, and and sometimes it makes me feel, to be honest, like a little dumb because I can't I can't find that nuanced kind of middle ground where I'm or I'm 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 carving the inside corner. I'm kind of just flensing a little bit off the top, but I'm not really getting. I'm not saying what I really mean, uh, and what what I what I what I really want as a writer is this is what I really mean. You take it or leave it. And if you think I've overstepped the line, or if you think I've 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 hit the nail too heavily on the head, well, fair enough. But that's actually the way that I really feel. That's the way that my emotions come to me, sort of in these big, fairly obvious, you know, bursts. And I feel like a lot of literary feel it the same way, but then they feel like I have to peel things off of it to get to this kind of. I don't know, but whatever. It's they do it very, very well. So God, God bless them. Yeah. In a book like Cataract City, you are combining in a way, not spelling everything out, but also with, as we say, visceral scenes of visceral impact. So it's almost you're almost taking. I don't know if I would say taking genre materials and putting them into a literary structure, but certainly the events of the book would not be out of place in a book considered more genre, would they not? I mean, you're. It's it's all a matter of how you put them together, right? Totally. I it's think not one of the actions. It's no, the arrangement. No, and I mean I think one of the funny things that happened was it got nominated for um I think it was the International Thriller Writers Award, you know, and it's there with books by like George Pelicanos and very like very obviously thriller writers and and at first I think I was like, "Well, how did First of all, how did the book even find its way in that pile of books that were considered for that? But secondarily, why did it, you know, why did it uh, merit a nomination or a shortlist on it? But then you look at it; it's like very much. The, it's a book really told in four parts. Uh, one is sort of more ch two parts are childhood, and two parts are more adult and crime oriented, and kind of the repercussions of these two characters as they, the, you know, they get, one of them falls afoul of the law and the other is kind of enforced, tasked with, with upholding it. Um, and those are very, yeah, very genre kind of trappings. And as we've, we've already spoken, you, you know my background and you know what I come from. So I think most writers are a synthesis of their own experiences and, and what they've read, their, their, their influences. And, um, and obviously I'm writing as Nick Cutter and uh, I, I, I feel like I've got a a straightforwardly thriller book in me at some point too. So, um, take another pseudonym. You need a yeah. fourth one. <laughs> Depending if my if the agent decides one, then it'll yes. just get too. I mean, I think at this point I would probably argue for just like let's put it out on my own name. Can't we just understand yes. that like a person has dualities yes. and he or she has a lot of stuff in them? Yes. Uh, but yeah, no, you're totally right in that it's it's there's there's genre trappings to the book. Um, and uh, and I, I certainly don't dispute it, nor would I want to run away from that. It's, I mean, it's one of those things I think about genre, because any subject matter can be market not marketed, can be written at any level. It's, it's just never about the characters, never about the actions they take, always about how those are presented. And I think it makes me think of, we haven't mentioned this part about Cataract City, but it's very important. In the beginning, there is... The, the, these kids with their kids at the beginning, yeah. Owen and Duncan, 
they come together over professional wrestling, which many consider to be the lowest form of entertainment that exists. So tell me, were you ever a fan of wrestling as a kid? Absolutely. I think that's really what um, the first part of the book is about, and that was the most enjoyable part of writing it, is that you get to go back to those times in your life when when there were black hats and white hats and and everything made sense the shades of gray sort of filch into your life as you get older and you realize that uh that everybody your own parents included are not perfect and um and that the, the heroes that you grew up idolizing are actual human beings and uh when the curtain closes they go on with their life and that life might not be the most pure of lives you, well, you abstract them as a kid the way that you sort of abstract everything and when you they meet a real they meet their idol a real wrestler and it doesn't go well right yeah exactly they sort of they sort of see the wrestler behind the curtain as he as he exists with all of his flaws and the way that all of us are when we reach say 40 or 45 i mean you've got i don't know who said it but like you know every every man at 50 years old has the face that he deserves and most of us do you know um uh, my, myself will, will be included in that and uh, but, but if you're operating under assumption that this person is perfect and this person is the person that you see in the ring or whatever his area of excellence is or her area of excellence is, is then it's tough I think as a child to conceive that there is any pl- part where that excellence fails right. and, uh, and so yeah when I grew up like wrestlers were the physical ideals they were the they did the right thing uh, and and if they were bad, they were bad to the bone. They were you you could you could discount them as being just truly bad individuals. Right, yes. And you didn't realize that there was an entire um, circuitry, whatever existing behind them, that, that manipulated the way that we felt about it, and that manipulated the way that those matches went all the time. And and you would even I think as a kid I would even actually when the punches didn't land, obviously you would still say you'd find some way to discount that that had even happened. You know, your mind sort of rewired itself to believe that, no, I didn't actually just see that. So, um, and that's... humans do in many contexts. Oh, exactly, you're right. Even as adults, we do it. Uh, But I think part of the early part of the book is taken up with that kind of liminal stage, as you say, between childhood and adulthood, where they can still cling to the innocences of childhood and, and kind of the abandonment of saying, well, I don't have to deal with this because this is an adult problem. But there's a certain part where that starts to twist and, and bend, and you actually have to take on adult responsibilities, and, and the book thrusts those responsibilities on them in a, at an early stage. Um, but I'm fascinated by that kind of that tension, I guess, between when you when you can still be a kid, but yet when you have to sort of start understanding the way the adult world works. Right. There's this moment where. When the uh, this wrestler Bruiser Mahoney has already sort of descended into his final s- drunken psychotic paroxysms, where he wants to pull the scales from the eyes of these kids and say wrestling's fake, and on some level I think Duncan and Owen already understand that it's fake. Every kid, every kid knows the things they like are at some level fake or presented to them in that way. But for every wrestling fan, I guess there's the wrestling's fake moment, but. Then there's the later moment. I mean, you grow up. If you still, if you reflect back upon wrestling, you realize that wrestling, on some level, it's fake. But on another one, wrestling isn't fake. It's the, it's really a theater of even richer human dramas. I mean, as you well know, you're right. These guys are wrestlers. Like they, something brought them to become professional wrestlers. They might be friends when they're supposed to be enemies in the ring. But there's, the drama of wrestling is a very real drama, right? Yeah, I completely, and it's. I think that's the way it's managed to maintain some foothold in our culture for as long as it has, and it's a very like, it's a simple drama, you know. And I think that's what is compelling about it. And I guess as we've gotten older, you know, you've seen it become more sexualized, and they've they've tried to hold on to, say, my generation by sort of twisting things so that it kind of. But I think at its most purest, in the way it should ultimately stay is just it's good guys and bad guys and uh, heels and baby faces as it's as it said yes. in the, the wrestling vernacular and and it presents a very clean understandable view of the world um, and now now even wrestling has gotten to the point where it's acknowledging that you know you know, a Stone Cold Steve Austin or whatever, you can be a bad guy, but still sort of be a hero in a way, and which is fine. You know, I mean, and, and every business is is prone to the shifting cultural moment. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, in the book especially, it was just, it was simply meant as, a, again, as we said, a vehicle to express really that moment where you realize that the, the, 
white hats and the black hats are actually all twisted together, all mushed up, and it's all just one kind of general patina of gray. Yes, yes, it is. I mean, and there's the drama at the level that it's dramatized in wrestling, but also the drama beneath it. More interesting, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, you know, you, I remember once the internet came along, you'd start hearing stories that, you know, uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan was doing coke with the Iron Sheik, and you're like, what? First of all, they're doing coke, but second of all, it's like the Avatar of America and the Avatar of like sort of you know the the Middle East who are it's supposed to be mortal enemies and they're you know buddies sort of a thing and uh, you know and you hear this as as a child but as you said I think there's some point of view that is even as a child is sophisticated enough and is is kind of aware of the ambient signs around you that it's not really there is a curtain behind this and there's something twisting and roiling behind there that is the real basic nature of humanity and it's not quite as clean cut as what this is being presented to you as it's true and even in a book like cataract city where there are real visceral to use the word again boxing matches dog fights you know there's a whole wilderness survival novel novella embedded in there these things are all on on a surface level, very compelling because it's life and death, it's blood and guts often, but it's really the sort of wider drama those things make up that is beneath them and around them. I mean, you care about the boxing match, you care more about why why the boxing match happens, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the circumstances that compel uh, those characters into that moment, and I think that's what we had to work on a lot in, in the editing of it, because... Um, you know, sometimes the jury rigging around a book that, that maybe a reader isn't aware of is that, yeah, whatever I tendered to my editor was not what the final product that ends up on the bookshelf. There's there's a lot of uh, going back and forth with my agent and my editor, and, and mainly with Cataract City was like, okay, you have this set piece, this say this big fight. We have to make sure that the characters' motivations going into it make sense. Because otherwise, it's just sort of like, oh, Craig, you're really good at writing these scenes, and clearly you've written yourself into one. Um, and so you have to go back, and, and and they were there. The motivations were there. They just weren't as clearly stated as they needed to be. And that's really what it is. It's, it's what funnels in any book, you know, or, or movie, or any kind of creative narrative. What funnels these characters to this point of calamity or or and it does it seem reasonable does it seem like okay i understand why this person found him or herself at that point in their lives and can i empathize with that and if i can't can i at least understand it and that's sort of the the sort of mortaring and trial work that needs to go on sometimes in the editorial stage to really get it to the point where you're you're hopefully the motivations match the actions now finally nothing in this novel really fits into the rural sort of winsomeness of, of Canlit, Canadian literature. What is what is essentially, if anything, Canadian about this book, or about the books you write under your own name? Well, that's a great question, Colin. That's actually something that... Because uh, Canlit, uh, you know, and I, I guess I guess this would be broadcast to people who are, are largely American, although anyone could listen All to right. it. Obviously, yeah. anyone could listen to it. Um, but Canlit is a very sort of special but a, a nebulous and kind of a moving goalpost because we as a country are young and we're evolving all the time so but what traditional canlet was sort of uh robertson davies and um uh, margaret lawrence and and that kind of notion of what canada was and wilderness narratives and obviously as we go forward mordecai richler and uh, monroe and atwood all of whom are sensational writers and thank god that they, they they happen upon the international stage to kind of open the door for the rest of us to come through to, to whatever degree that we can but it's changing right and i think i think canadian writers specifically are somewhat find ourselves hung up because it's the way we come through university it's the way we come up of like what is can lit if we're going to write what is it what is it what is it add to that kind of lineage of canlit but i think more and more we're realizing that that canlit is thankfully a mutable concept and canlit is whatever you're able to provide to it that 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 kind of advances your own view of what your life has been in canada so um which would be no, probably no different than american literature the literature of any culture uh, but my my stuff is very untraditional canlit and did i worry about that uh, I'm the sort of person who worries about anything, you know. So yes, I worried about it, but I think as we we spoke about earlier, um, these are the tools that I have. This is what I bring to the game. 
I, you know, if you're not loving what you're doing, you got to find a different job. You got to find something else that brings you joy because writing is a, I don't, I don't know if <laughs> curses are allowed, but you it's a, it's a fucking tough gig, man. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying it's tougher than any other gig. Right. You know, it's not. I mean, there's the plenty. The factor is bad too. Yeah, exactly. There are tons of uh, rough gigs out there. Um, but, I mean, writing is the one where you feel like, listen, you're gonna, you're, people are going to come at you for critical reasons and, and fair or not, whatever, you've got to uh, tolerate them. But if you can't just sit down behind your computer and enjoy what you're doing and sort of disappear into the page and disappear into the story and those characters, whatever those characters are, whether they, whether they hit, the, uh, you know, hit the target of whatever Canlit is or not, um, you just got to write what feels true and, and valuable to you, and, and after that, just let let sort of things shake out as they may. Wise words in Toronto from Craig Davidson today, who's also known under other pseudonyms, uh, most notably Nick Cutter, the horror writer, with more coming. I'm sure a thriller writer will emerge as well. Craig, thanks so much. No, my pleasure, Colin. Thank you for, for, uh, for having me. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. Keep up with the LARP at lareviewofbooks.org and me at colinmarshall.org. Thanks.